This show may contain explicit language and or spoilers. Where we're going, we don't need roads. Carpe diem. Seize the day, boys. Just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. Good morning, Vietnam! I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore! They call it a royale with cheese. I have always depended on the kindness of strangers. You've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Shaken, not stirred. They call me Mr. Tibbs. I'll have what she's having. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. You make me want to be a better man. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Go ahead. Make my day. You can't handle the truth. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. May the force be with you. To infinity and beyond. They're here. Are you talking to me? Are you talking to me? Yes, we are, because this is the greatest movie of all time podcast. Welcome back to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. This is episode number 10, Slumdog Millionaire from 2008. I am Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. And tonight, uh, as I mentioned at the top here, we are reviewing a movie that won Best Picture in 2008. Um, Now, uh, just before we kind of get off to the top, what is your relationship to this film? Watched it about, uh, well, when it, right after it came out. It was, I think I may have even gotten it in before the Academy Awards and uh, enjoyed the film. Um, at the time, we had had a lot of different exchange students. So we had had a couple of kids, I think, from India in the area. And so um, had some knowledge of India. Uh, India was a rising uh, economic force at that time. And just kind of, um, I guess that's what initially interested me in the film. So, I mean, part of the background of this uh, film was is that um, it's the first real film that got um, recognition coming out of um, the Toronto International Film Festival, which I've highlighted just on a personal basis between you and I. I talk about it all the time, but um, that often has a kind of harbinger effect um, or a foreshadowing effect uh, going into the, the award season that usually the one that ends up winning the audience award tends to get nominated for best picture. And this was the first one that that really became a factor. Um, it was the first one that won the audience award that really kind of uh, moved forward and ended up winning best picture in the end. And for me, um, this was... Um, this was the same year as a few other films that I really liked. Um, Frost Nixon, which I didn't even watch until way after the or the fact. Uh, Gran Torino, which I think is Eastwood's last really great film. Um, then uh, uh, this was also the year of The Dark Knight, um, which won a couple of awards that year. But um, I don't think anything kind of hit the cultural resonance 
um, quite in the way that this did. This kind of was that whole underdog narrative that um, maybe even if people hadn't seen the movie, and a lot of people did, um, this was one that at least was part of the pop cultural reference point um, for probably about a good year, uh, even after it was done. Um, I mean, this this set off kind of a um, unknown area of the culture for a while, and it was getting reference points all over the place. I know famously um, it's referenced probably a half dozen times um, in The Big Bang Theory and several other shows um, that uh, of that time. So I do think it had a um, impact in that way. I don't know if it's held up over the, over time in the same way and if people remember it quite in the same vein that they did at the time. But at least for about a 12-month period, I think this was one of the biggest movies uh, at the time. I would say, yeah, that that's pretty much the case. And I think... I think it somewhat has lost its luster simply because it's hard to say um, or to put it. Um, and I understand your your view of the movie probably differs from mine because movies, in order to really have an impact, have to move us in certain ways. And sure. if they touch a certain aspect, I mean, you grew up... Well, we talked house. about that last week, the the emotional impact of, you know, something that true art speaks to us in an emotional level. Well, you grew up in a house where it was a lawyer and a, and a professional, your mother being a professional at the time, different other career opportunities, but now working as or in my office as a representative and office manager. So you don't have that, Okay. I grew up with a high school dropout as a father and a mother who barely passed high school. They were subsistence people, very low middle class. And my whole life, I had to listen to people who kept telling me I couldn't do things because I didn't have the money. I didn't have the connections. I didn't have the, um, the, uh, the, uh, the smarts, the skills, you name it, I've always been told that I couldn't. So that's why this film speaks to me. It's you have a purpose. In this case, it was to get Latka or Latika. Latika, excuse me. Um, and everything derived towards that goal. Well, you know, <clears throat> I mean, everything I do uh, professionally in some part is because somebody told me I couldn't do it. So I'm just, I guess more than anything, my life has been based on, yeah, up you too. And so uh, so to that extent, this speaks to me. Here's a kid from nowhere who's a slump. And, you know, all through school, through high school uh, and college when I studied international relations, we talked about India and the, the caste system that was in place in India. And it is extremely uh, poignant yet today. It's only started to break down as people with or by their skills have become the nouveau rich. Um, well, it's broken down because they've absorbed a lot of capitalistic principles and market ideas. Like real, the real breakdown of um, class system in that way is um, 
capitalized um, tendencies where, I mean, even I was reading an article from Buffett uh, the other day that um, the the difference in the market value of somebody who was um, super athletic 100 years ago where they were a farmer isn't nearly the same as the top uh, one um, one hundredth of one percent who can dribble a basketball really well th- today, where like LeBron is uh, nothing 150 years ago uh, except in a really great laborer. Today, his market skill is extraordinary and he can hone in on one particular thing. Like in the same way, you're getting a lot of difference and you're even seeing some of the advancement from when he's a young boy even to when he's, um, you know, in his teens, kind of the development of India going forward just from the early 90s, late 80s to um, the middle 2000s. And obviously that's even changed up until this point where they're a, an extremely burgeoning economy. But it's still, and it's not just India, it's every place. And that's what speaks. Any capitalist country, even, you know, India was more stratified than most. But it's still in existence, even to this day, in the United States. Because I have a very good friend, you know very well, his nephew was recruited to play football at Harvard. And when he went to talk to the dean of the department he wanted to be in, the dean reached into his desk and he pulled out a old-fashioned Rolodex. And on this Rolodex, he had, he said, I have uh, about 5,000 names of alumnus who are in your department, who all I have to do is pick up the phone and call. And because you're a Harvard football player, they will help you find a job. And that's the advantage of Harvard. And that's the advantage of having money and prestige and getting into the right schools. It's not the education, because quite frankly, I would stack a Harvard education up against the University of Wisconsin, the University of Minnesota. You know, I mean, it's, you know, there's maybe certain aspects, certain professors that are better, but it's really the context and the social aspects of it that makes the difference. And that's what's going on. This film specifically it not only breaks the barrier, it does it by putting money in the kid's hand. So not only does he get to beat everybody and overcome it, he comes out on the other side being the rich kid who can now dictate some of his own future. Well, and I did go through some of the numbers on this, okay? So even though, um, by comparison, the amount of money that he wins is actually uh, significantly less if not, or it equates to about $432,000 American. The the difference in the cost of living um, day-to-day in India by comparison to where we live in Wisconsin. So the average um, cost of living is about $51,000 per year uh, for an average family. The average um, cost of living per month in India is about $73. And so by comparison... You could live about 19 years if you literally just spent down a million dollars, if they handed you a million dollar check, you could live 303 years off of the $432,000 that they were given. So he has become not only extremely wealthy, but extravagantly wealthy. Well, and and a celebrity. He's yeah. now probably one of the most uh, famous men in India at this point in time. And he basically could do whatever he wanted because 
people will latch on to him because of his um, his fame. But the, the whole point of the movie is not that. He honestly doesn't care what, about it and almost throws it away. Like, the celebrity status probably would have been there. He might have gotten endorsements or whatever uh, because he was the guy on TV and got up to that last question. But as we'll even come around, like, he even smiles because he doesn't know the answer to the last question and just guesses because the money doesn't matter. It's just being in a place where he thinks he can reach out and, you know, um, make an appeal to the woman he loves. Yeah, I found that ironic because the whole thing, he he knew the answers based upon events in his life and of course the one answer the last answer he can't get because the event in his life is the teacher throws the book at him so he never gets to read it okay so here's the other thing about that he doesn't know all of the answers half of them are seemingly guesses and even the one where he's fed the answer uh on the second to last question um he intentionally tries to get it wrong in order to subvert the other guy and ends up getting it right, which ends up, you know, being the the cursor for the entire movie that um, then at that point he accuses him of cheating. Yeah. So I like I I think some of the the basic nuances in the story structure um, do break down quite easily in this movie, but ultimately you're going for the romantic side of it. And the first part at least sucks you in, uh, even if it's a little bit disjointed in its storytelling element. Um, It doesn't really bear out and doesn't keep a lot of consistency sometimes, but um, there are some other elements that uh, I'm sure we'll get through. So, um, all right. Uh, Before we get uh, too far, um, just for anybody that's been paying attention, um, I'm just going to give a quick overview of the plot summary which normally i do a little bit sooner than this but uh as 18 year old jamal malik played by dev patel uh answers questions on the indian version of who wants to be a millionaire flashbacks show how he got there part of a stable of young thieves after their mother dies jamal and his brother salim survive on the streets of mumbai salim finds the life of crime agreeable but jamal scrapes by with small jobs until landing a spot in the game show so um, we'll just give the, the first part of this uh, before we get into some of the bigger categories. But um, what is this movie about? Um, love transcending uh, class and obstacles and class um, being or having the opportunities or being granted opportunities to advance, but to some extent, love being even that, you know, I guess you want to put it in a nutshell, a good woman can really push you along the way. Um, maybe mine's a little bit more simplistic version of it, and uh, I didn't quite take the same uh, angle on it. Um, mine was a fairy tale romance mixed with the hard reality of two poor Muslim kids from India. Because really, the the entire element of this story is um, fanciful or fa- fantastic in its its element. I mean, the kid uh, takes a, gets almost a one out of a million shot 
to be on the show to begin with. Um, and even though, uh, there was some algorithm or whatever that they won in order to figure out exactly when to time, uh, to call, to be on the show, but also having all of the right answers due to, uh, all of the circumstances or circumstances in his life. And, um, despite all of the problems that go wrong in the end, he still gets the girl and um, they're able to be together, and all of it ends up being happy in the end for the two of them. Like, I mean, at, at, at its core base, it's a fairy tale romance. Well, you want to know what it is? We haven't gotten to that film yet. This is High Noon in India. Is it? I think it is. Ultimately, I, I, he's trying see, to he's trying to get through a, a a horrible series of events. His life, ultimately achieving victory and being able to walk off into the sunset with the girl. I mean, I I feel that's a bit of a stretch, but um, okay. And, I I don't think it it um, lays over. I see where you're going with it. I don't know if I I'd, I'd make the same claim, but all right. So um, before we get into the other categories, uh, we'll just take a quick break and uh, we'll be right back. And now I want to tell you about Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It gives you smart creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone, tablet, or computer and helps you distribute them to all the major platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and more. Plus, they help to hook you up with sponsorships like this one, no matter the listener size, which will help your help you fund your podcast. And best yet, it's free to use. Look, if you've ever had an itch to talk and express yourself about a topic you like, there is no better time than 2020 to do so. I've started two podcasts this year alone, including this one, and we use Anchor for each and every episode. So what do you have to lose? Download the free Anchor app and or go to anchor.fm to get started making your own podcast today. And welcome back again. Um, before we kind of dive into the rest of things, I did want to mention today that um, ironically, um, as we're doing the movie today, the uh, Indian actor Irfan Khan, who ended up playing the... Um, inspector in the movie uh actually passed away today at the age of uh, 54 from cancer he had a very rare form and had been battling it for almost two years um so that's that's kind true. of yeah he, he'd been a well-known uh bollywood actor for quite a long time and i i do think it, it's worth mentioning that um there are quite a few um uh clear bollywood tropes that are attempted by this movie um i'll get into a little bit more of that later but um you know, there are, I, I think it was maybe a year or two ago, we were looking up, like, the highest paid actors in the world, and, like, three or four of them are Bollywood actors, like, in the top ten. So, they do, there are some uh, very famous and very um, well-known, high-paid uh, actors that most people in America have never heard of. Well, there are a billion people in India. I know you don't have to do a whole lot and you, you know, to, uh, to have a huge box office. 
Well, and l- take this for example, then, um, that uh, the highest watched uh, sporting event in the world on an annual basis is the cricket match between India and Pakistan. Yeah, I can believe that. I mean, it, it is by far, it outdraws like the Super Bowl three to one. Yeah, I can understand that. You know, and really, that's one of the reasons why years ago, after I had read a, a piece in uh, Foreign Affairs magazine that I was fascinated by India, I kept saying to people, no one would believe me when I would say this, that it wasn't going to be China that was going to be our economic rival in the 21st century. It was going to be India because not only are there a billion people there, they all speak English. So, well, they, to the most only part, to a certain extent. For the most part, they speak English. So you got a billion people who speak English who will work for less money, at least on the on the low side of it, dealing with Britain and the United States. And really, at this point in time, the international language of diplomacy is English. It is no longer French as it had been for centuries. If you go anywhere in the world and you have different people they who speak different languages. I observed this in in Amsterdam. Somebody came up to somebody who was speaking Dutch. He spoke Italian. They looked at each other. They both spoke or started speaking in English, and they conducted their business in English. I'm I'm just gonna say, like, you may be true on the economics of it. China still can't be understated. And they've had a little bit longer um, tail at trying to make their um, economic aspirations um, part of uh, the general population or, or of the world. But also, uh, I think China is a more uh, important geopolitical foe at this point than uh, India, too, which I think has more bearing on it. But let's not get into that argument. So, um <laughs> Anyway, so uh, best performance would be the first category up. Uh, who did you have down as your best overall performance? Patel. Yeah, I, I did too. I, I think he's easily the um, one of the, the better uh, performances in, in this whole thing. I don't think we can completely write off, uh, you know, maybe honorable mention of Danny Boyle, but um, I, I just thought he was um, terrific as the kid. In this, and this really kind of like jump started anything. Um, he's been in a few different cultural touchstones at this point. He was also in Lion a few years ago. Um, he's been in a, a, some smaller films. He was recently in, um, I think it was uh, uh, Love Stories or something like that on Amazon. It was a small mini series. Um, he was on, um, uh, what was Newsroom. that? Uh, Newsroom, thank you. Um, so he's had at least a decent. Um, little career after this of um, try- so hard to be there too it just shows his personality and he's just I don't know I just don't like I just have no care That's for him whatsoever when he throws his hat over his eyes and he's like oh go get me so this and it's just like to the very last minute he doesn't think about anybody but himself and he does not draw you in and make you want to be his friend or anything Depends on what you define as charismatic. Harrison exemplified the character, and it does pop off the page. To that extent, it's a memorable performance. You will always link 
uh, Rex Harrison, and uh, the character is one and the same, and it is really a defining moment for him as an actor. So to that extent, if that's what you define as charismatic, then yes, I agree. Harrison and the character became one and the same. To that extent, if that's your definition of charismatic, it was. Although there's a reason why Harrison is portrayed throughout the entire play in brown tweed, because there was nothing spectacular about him. He was kind of supposed to be a type of fixture within the room, more or less. Flames at the moment, but... I'm sure there are people with particular feelings. After we just did Heat of the Night and we're talking about this. Okay, but him, him calling him boy and, you know, a couple of slaps to the face in 1967 by being comparison to hooking him up to a literal battery and electrocuting him is a little did bit we, different. Did we or did we not have a situation where somebody died in custody in the United States in a cell, I believe, of being the best secondary performance? Because there are a lot of lead people that could potentially do this. But, uh, Dad, who did you have down as your best secondary performer? Uh, I had um, Army Hammer because I loved the way that they played this, uh, the the guys that you love to hate. Yeah, absolutely. I had the I had the Winklevoss twins. I think they did a really good job, especially I don't know who played them though. But um, what I found interesting about them is the way and how they they cartooned the character really well. I mean, we ended up hating them towards the end of it. So uh, and I like the balance between their need to 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 get what they want as rich kids that they are, but on the other side, uh, maintaining the prestige and the status of what it means to be that of a Winklevoss. So that's why they never took uh, drastic actions against Facebook and they never did anything in an immature way. So it was a nice balance of the two. So you both have army hammer because, uh, uh, he plays both of the Winklevoss twins or the Winklevi, if you will, uh, to refer to some of the script, uh, from the movie. But, uh, I had down Andrew Garfield. He's not a guy that we've mentioned a lot yet, but this really springboarded him into landing the Spider-Man role and then doing a few other films after that. Uh, he hasn't had as much notoriety in the last um, three, four years, uh, particularly since they redid uh, Spider-Man again with Tom Holland. But uh, this is one where I thought he, he by far is the most sympathetic. He's the guy that the story is kind of told through and that there's that nice reveal in the middle of the movie that he is uh, the primary one bringing the lawsuit other than the Winklevi Um that uh, and so this whole form of betrayal it sets up the second half of the movie, where why did the relationship fall apart? Particularly if you come into this movie without knowing um, too much of anything else that uh, was a part of this, as at least I did uh, at the time. I was not familiar with any of this story really uh, until such time as the movie came out. Um, so that takes us to our most charismatic, uh, Brendan. Who did you think basically stole every scene? <laughs> I'd probably say JT again. I just like the way that he he grooves. I, I like the way that he, he takes control of a lot of the scenes and, and how he interacts with whether it's the women in the scene or whether it's the, the way that he sells Zuckerberg on the dream and how to build better product. I just like the way that he uh, he cartooned Sean Parker there, so I'm really happy with his work. <laughs> okay. I, I really don't have 
any knowledge of Sean Parker really outside of this. So, uh, but I do, I have a certain level of a man crush on, on Justin Timberlake and I'm not afraid to admit that one, but uh, getting or circling back to Dana's point, I think uh, just about every man on the planet would feel that they were more confident and better off if they looked like either Timberlake or uh, maybe Brad Pitt, DiCaprio. So uh, that's not a really uh, a strong confidence point. Yeah. Okay. There's, there's another one, John Hamm. That yeah. So, uh, but dad, who did you have down as your most charismatic? Boy, that was a little difficult for me because I didn't know if anybody, I guess JT is going to probably be the most charismatic because just by the, the fact of how he played the part, which was almost uh, an operator throughout the whole thing. Well, he tries to be the the smooth talking uh, kind of he's almost portrayed somewhat as a con man, uh, especially because it's most of his character is told through Andrew Andrew Garfield's like testimony after the fact. But uh, it's one where it was a good ensemble cast. So it's hard to say that anybody really stole the movie in most of their scenes. But because of the way that the story was written, how it was portrayed and what he came out of it, I I'm going to say Andrew Garfield because I, I literally think just about every scene he's in he pops off the screen and is by far the most compelling of any of the characters as far as uh, my opinion goes all right so uh we're gonna move on to best scene here uh if either of you has a comment I'm just gonna try and um run through a list of nominations that I have. If I miss any that you'd like to do, we'll cover that afterwards. But any comments that you have on the scenes, just be, feel free to kind of pop in um, and, and talk about it, anything that you appreciated from any of these uh, particular scenes. So uh, the first scene I have for nomination is the opening scene. Uh, I think it's it's the scene that really sets off everything else and kind of not only sets the tone but really gives you an understanding of Zuckerberg and his, um, I guess not value set, but what drives him really. Uh, you could say, and my second scene is the the face smash scene that is uh, immediately following that. But that whole opening sequence really kind of brings to the forefront exactly who he is and where he's going to go. Because you know, by even if you uh, only got a very small description of what this movie was going into it because I think most people, oh yeah, it's the story of how this guy founded Facebook. Well, okay, but in that description, you know by the end of it he's got to uh, discover or not discover, but create Facebook. So by doing that, how does he get to that point? And this is really the entrance point for most of us as to who this guy is and why why he was driven to do this in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would say the add-on for for that, like uh, my favorite scene from the movie was definitely the, um, the well, actually building on what you said about the opening ceremony or the opening scene, rather. I think what's fascinating is it is it humanizes Zuckerberg, right? At the beginning, he's just a nerd who, you know, gets dumped by his girlfriend. He's not some billionaire uh, tech guy. And I think the message here for all of us is that all successes – or a lot, a lot of these great projects start from little nonsensical things. We tend to see Zuckerberg with Facebook and we go, oh, I guess he was always born to build Facebook when that was not the case at all. So you mentioned something earlier about all of the um, lucky breaks that he seemed to have or all the small things that kind of went into this and um, the certain 
things that all had to happen in exactly the same way. And I would say that's probably true of just about anybody who gets to anywhere in this world, especially with how many people we have and how complicated the world is anymore. Um, just from that standpoint, it's one of those where, um, if everything isn't exactly perfect, I, I don't know if he would have ended up in, in that regard, but now he's there. And so now how does he deal with all of these things that are thrust upon him as a result of it? And I think that's kind of where the, the term accidental billionaire kind of comes in is, is exactly that. Uh, all right. So if, uh, we have nothing further to add on that one. Um, the next one I had down other than face mash, which, uh, that, that entire sequence and rating girls and the rest of it kind of gives you that, oh, yeah, well, okay, this guy really is kind of an asshole um, type of thing. And so that's why uh, I do agree to a certain extent with you, Dad, that um, there is that sense or that hint of who his uh, true character is by that. Um, and uh, I, I feel that way. But I've since had much more complicated uh, feelings about Facebook. The next one after that that I wanted to mention, though, was Facebook me. Um, I remember – so I had – and I, I don't know about you, Brendan. I know my dad definitely didn't have one, but I had a MySpace page at this point. And about 2006, 2007 is when I first got the – uh, thing and I remember there was a girl in my class who said something about oh yeah you should really like look at this thing this is kind of cool and um, it, it doesn't have all the individuality of uh, fate or of uh, MySpace but the Facebook is actually kind of a cooler thing and I don't know why that stuck with me that that was like the first hint or inclination I had of this but uh I don't remember the last time I probably still have a MySpace page floating out there and I have no idea what's on it. I probably should try and like look at it and delete it once. But um, this kind of just took over and became the social media platform and was such a big revelation, particularly because as like the early years that I was going through or that everybody was going through, it was kind of my college years. So um, this is kind of an interesting um situation for the, this particular thing but that that phrase facebook me um you you think about the companies that uh have their own verb or have their own phrase attached to them google it uh facebook me he tweeted something today all of these things have become so ingrained into our normal day-to-day -day conversation that you recognize the importance they now uh have in our world moving forward and they're likely to stay for a significant amount of time. One thing you have to remember when you're talking about this is the moment in time, okay? <clears throat> it's much harder for somebody to create the next Facebook right now because there already is a Facebook. Um, you look back on history, the great fortunes were all created because at a moment in time, somebody was in the right place and had the right idea and the right technology so things fall in place. Bill Gates and uh, uh, came through it with uh, uh, Steve Wozniak at a time and and, uh, and uh, uh, Steve Jobs, they came out at a time when personal computers were really, you know, uh, Paul Allen, when they were just in their infancy. Okay. 
Um, you can even go back into time. John Rockefeller started pumping oil and refining it at a time when automobiles and uh, gas-powered engines were just starting. And so, you know, he just happened to be in the right place. Um, Andrew Carnegie started uh, Carnegie Steel at a time when steel uh, was just becoming important for the production of railroads and for rail cars and for um, buildings and the the, the steel girder was being developed in part by um, Gustav Eiffel and such. So it's it happens to be the moment when things are ripe for the next technology as well as just the sheer accidents of it. And this is when social media was really starting to take off, which is we started to have this period of where there was more isolation of people. And so they were trying to reach out to people through technology because they thought it was really a great way of interacting with more people than the select few you had as friends. It's tended to kind of reverse, but that just happened to be the moment in time. And for context sake, this is also the time or the period in time where um, we specifically get uh, the um, raising of nerd culture as being one of the dominant forces moving forward. And I, I do think that provides a certain sense um, as to why we revere the the tech giants a little bit more than we would have because they become um, such big forces in our uh, current environment. They've been somewhat lionized. Uh, for their industry and what they're actually doing. So, uh, all right. So the next one I had down, the dinner with Sean Parker, the whole sequence building up to that. I, I think that that's like the pivot scene in the movie. Everything before that is like the Harvard sense of things. And then you leave that dinner and it's the, okay, my world is completely different. I'm going to move to California with uh, the rest of these guys. And we're going to, make Facebook this bigger deal. We're taking all of Sean's advice. We're getting into um, these uh, angel investors and all of these other things start to to flow, but it pivots off of that one particular scene. And it's, um, I guess, best signified by the fact that it ends this particular dinner where you can see the resentment because it's being told by Andrew Garfield primarily in that that particular sequence. Where um, Sean Parker at the end of it says, you should just call it Facebook. Drop the the. And that's like the significant part of it. And, you know, Facebook is cool. The Facebook isn't. And you, you kind of see where the, the true pivot of this movie is. So I think it's a significant scene that sticks out particularly for me. All right. Uh, the next one I had up, forced cannibalism. If there is an indelible moment for anybody that's watched this movie a few times, and I completely forgot about this because I haven't watched this movie in several years, but it's the uh, whole sequence of uh, Eduardo being found out by the school newspaper of feeding chicken to his chicken. It's one right. of the few funny moments of this particular movie. No, it's funny. I actually forgot about that scene. It's good that you brought it up. <laughs> it was rather funny because uh, you can just see it. Um, how a lot of times, especially on college campuses, 
so much is made of so little. So I also want to highlight that one because uh, it's another one where some of these movies you'll throw out something that's comical or have an anecdote or something to that effect um, where you're going to have something thrown in that doesn't make sense with the rest of the movie. The fact that not only is this comical and that they throw this in, but they keep bringing it back around in multiple times because it's one of the sticking points in the whole lawsuit conversation. And Eduardo brings it up in the next scene I'm going to mention when he's forced out Um, and he blames Mark for all of the animosity because he feels like Mark has been trying to torpedo him for a while. And that was one of the first real um, shows of evidence that that was the case. So uh, we'll move forward into the the next one. I've now basically alluded to it, but um, Eduardo being forced out is probably the most climactic scene of the movie. It's not the final. There's probably about 15 or 20 minutes after that. But I think that um, the movie really – because for most of this, this is kind of a buddy journey adventure movie up until that scene. And that's why the whole betrayal thing in the middle of it that's kind of part of the reveal, um, again, especially if you were like me and didn't have any context coming into this movie, ends up working so well for this particular script and how it was written. Well, really, it is a climactic scene. And and, um, I guess what you have to understand about that scene, I actually understood it a little differently because, I mean, I've created a business. And what you sometimes will have is is people that are instrumental in starting the business and getting it going. At some point in time, they reach a point where their talent and skills do not fit with where you're going with this any further. And are you doing yourself or them a favor by continuing to allow things to lag and to just skate by uh, can't put ourselves in that kind of body. Yes. So, all right. Um, I just had three quick ones for funniest line. Um, Elliot, he's a man from outer space and we're taking him to his spaceship. Greg, well, can he just beam up? This is reality, Greg. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, that that's just basically poking fun at Star Trek in a movie where you're suspending the abnormal anyway, but um oh god, Elliot? What? Elliot. Elliot. I taught him how to talk. He can talk now. Wait. Can you say ET? ET? ET. Ha ha. E-T, 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 be good. Be good. I taught him that, too. I don't know if that's funny so much as, like, again, that's that's the moment where Gertie really connects with him, more or less. Um, And then the final one, which has to have an assist for, like, the physical humor. So if you haven't seen the movie, it it doesn't work as well for you. But uh, Gertie, here he is. Uh, Mary Bops E.T. with a refrigerator door. Here's who? The man from the moon. But I think you killed him already. Yes. I do love that scene. That the mother is completely oblivious. (laughs) Well, given the example that we usually have to go to. 
I'll let you have that one. <laughs> wow. Well, she doesn't uh, listen to the podcast anyway. So it doesn't well, That's matter. true. She claims she doesn't need to because she comes home and usually catches the last part of our recording. All right. So we'll go to the rubric grading. Um, so in my initial grade, I had Legacy higher. Uh, and I've just slightly knocked it down. Um, because there is a circulating animus um, that the the story for this movie is a bit plagiarized from an Indian writer, um, and even uh, a friend of Spielberg's, fellow um, celebrity director Martin Scorsese, even credits that some of this is ripped off. Spielberg has vehemently denied this, um, and gone on many times about how um, he didn't take anything from this other guy, but um, there are some direct plot lines from that particular thing. I also think that the further we've removed ourselves, like, had this been about 15 or 20 years ago, um, this movie would be, like... Um, still celebrate i think it's lost a little bit or tapered off as we've gotten a little bit further away from it i think it does have a certain legacy but i don't know if it works as well as it did um with it's, the audience and there's a certain element of this film that when you watch it again it's saccharine it's overly sweet and to that extent I think that modern culture has been a little more cynical. <laughs> well, look at the times that we're currently going through and the environment and art usually reflects its environment. And I think we've gotten a lot of uh, anti-heroes, um, much more layered and flawed characters than we used to. And uh, we treat the movies less as an escapism than we used to. So well, I mean, we could make this more, or it would be more poignant if, for example, in addition to ET going home, they banish um, certain Confederate general statues. I'm not touching that with a ten foot pole on the podcast, and you know it. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't have a problem with it, so I know. All right, so I gave it a nine. I knocked it down. I originally put this as a solid ten. I, I because would go, I would go nine point five because it is. I mean, all, all right, I'll, I'll say, even come up to it. I, all you have to do is say ET, and the film is how old? Twenty thirty-eight years old. Thirty-eight, thirty-eight years old, and. You say E.T., everybody yet today knows exactly what film you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, it, it's still widely known. There's still elements of it that are part of the pop culture lexicon. Um, I, I think it's had a tail. I just don't know. They did a Super Bowl commercial about it this last year. Yeah, I suppose. I... Well, all right. I, I for a couple of small come downs, um, we'll go to nine point five collectively. Then well, let's let's put it this way: there's nothing original in humanity anymore. Between Shakespeare 
and Chaucer and all the other writers, it's really difficult to come up with anything that's not at least somewhat plagiarized anymore. Yes and no, but uh, that that's that's a much larger discussion than you and I can take on for like best original ideas or something. One of these like specialty podcasts you and I want to do as a potential series. I've got other ones on. I want to do before I try and tackle that one, that uh, greased hog. Fair enough. Uh, impact significance. I had it as a nine point five. I think I could even go higher. Um, I'll go nine point five simply because. I, I keep the perfect score for something that absolutely has. Like, honestly, and this is one where the impact at the time, you do the convergence of critics, um, audience response, and then like the trifecta of like winning the award season. The one that I would reserve, even though I don't care for the film all that much, is I find it to be too sappy. Um, which is weird for me because I usually like all of those, but for whatever reason, this convergence doesn't work for me. But Titanic. <laughs> okay. It won Best Picture. It was critically acclaimed. And, like, everybody and their mother saw that movie, and it was part of, like, a big explosion at the time. You don't get a lot of... there. There isn't a lot that's going to come out right now that is going to be like the biggest movie of all time um, box office wise that everybody's going to see. And it's going to win all the, the awards and critic response. Yeah, I suppose, but so, but I will moments. say I, again, the fact that this was re-released twice, it had re-releases on VHS um, that does add to the legacy, but the impact on it alone um, the, the quote that you got from Richard Attenborough for who won best director and, um, best picture that year, um, in 82 for Gandhi, I know you have your own issues with that for that particular year, but he thought for sure he was going to lose to ET. So I, I think that in the moment, um, the fact that this set a record for the most weeks, I mean, this, this movie was out from June to Christmas. Because yeah. it kept oscillating between number one and number two at the box office for months. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the, the impact it had, the amount of people that saw it, the, the just box office acclaim that this movie had. And I still think there are a lot of people that grew up on this movie. Um, I, I think Wait. at for what it was at the time, it has to be an, at minimum a 9.5. Which is why I'm giving it a 9.5 because... 1981 is when I really started getting into the Best Picture nominees. And in 82, I saw all the Best Picture nominees except E.T. I just had no interest in it when I was in... This would have been my senior, senior year of high school. school. I just had no interest in it. I went and saw Gandhi. I saw Tootsie. I mean... To be honest, I still argue to this point that Tootsie was the best film that year. To be fair, it's it or that best picture race has four films we're eventually going to cover on this podcast. Tootsie, uh, this or E.T. here. Um, and frankly, it probably has more because that's also the year of Sophie's Choice. Yes. Um, but that wasn't nominated for best picture. No. Um, Gandhi mm -hmm. and The Verdict. Yes. 
which I thought the verdict was extremely well done, and in fact one of uh, one of Paul Newman's better performances. So, um, all right, uh, what did you have down for novelty? Um, I had down a eight point five. Okay, so I had a nine, and simply there are certain elements to this movie. I could probably be knocked down. Um, well, this I mean, is the, the second. Yeah. This is the second big um, sci-fi alien first encounter type of film that Spielberg did. The first one, though, was a very adult version, and this is much more the kids' version, and there's the certain sentimentality that's in this one that I didn't think was apparent in close encounters of the third kind. Um, there are other pieces of this that I thought were unique, but I can't put this by itself. Um, uh, it completely that high up. It has to do with the package because by this time we'd had star Trek from the sixties we had had all of those, uh, you know, schlock films. Well, from by the various, time E.T. came you know, out, we had two Star Wars films. Yeah. It, it's just not that novel. The, the novel is the package of it, which is to make a sci-fi fantasy into a story of innocence and love. That's where the novelty lies. It's not in the subject matter. It's in how it was presented. Sure. I'll, I'll even go for the, the perspective um, point of view and the audience it was trying to reach. Now, I understand that like Star Wars was still somewhat uh, for kids or a more general audience, but the sentimentality and the rest of it um, was yeah. um, specifically geared towards a younger audience. Yeah. Or families for, for that matter, I suppose. Uh classicness. Um, other than there are a couple of like um weird callbacks like the speak and spell. Um I, I didn't really find any problems with this movie. Like this seems pretty on the nose for what you would think of like any alien encounter. Um some of the special effects and the rest of it haven't aged you know, great. Yeah. Like you could tell they were still a little primitive, but you and I uh, made comment on that when we talked about the um, Raiders of the Lost Ark episode that we let off the uh, show with. So, yes, um, that's where I'm going with this, which is I have to give it a seven because this is a film that at the time may have been with special effects cutting edge, but when you're dealing with this level of special effects, over time, this was not a film to be done in high def. Okay? No. Uh, the fact is, is E.T. looked rubber. Okay? <laughs> you could tell it was rubber. And when they showed the spaceship, it was like, <laughs> oh my god, here's a big plastic function with a bunch of plastic lights blinking and, you know, it's well, like, but even come on. You mean a concept of like the spaceship? It doesn't even like look as creative or you know whatever else. It basically just looks like a, a weird Christmas tree ornament. 
Yes. Or or a uh, or a uh, uh, some sort of like um, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? Um, something that you would sit in the backyard, and sit into um, a. Um, it would sit in your backyard. You'd sit on it with the fenced in. Uh, oh, a merry-go-round? No, it's not a merry-go-round. But I, you know, uh, um, I'm drawing an absolute blank. I don't know. But it, it, you know, it, it looks like something that you would have in your backyard, and like you'd invite the neighbors over, and you'd sit in the screened-in porch. It it didn't look like a spaceship. I mean, what was? I mean, the thing, the little, the little uh, arrow thing on the top. It looked like, like it should be on uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang instead of uh, a sci-fi film. All right, so um, that will take us to. Oh no, I guess we never really scored it out. Um, so you said you had a seven for that. Yep, I had an eight and a half. Uh, I guess we'll average it out in between to a. Seven seven five, um, rewatchability. Mm. So it depends. I, am I turning in and catching it in the middle, and watching the last half, or am I watching the first half? So, um, I put it as a seven. Uh, I really don't have any problems with this. This is again one that I would probably show to other people and enjoy watching again. But I don't think it's one I'm actively seeking out because I didn't grow up with it. I think there are people that would have a sentimentality toward it. And so, like, I'm not going to knock it down terribly for that either. But it's certainly not a... It wasn't a problematic rewatch other than maybe that first half an hour where it's still kind of breaking into the film for me. Yeah, I I, I had between a six and a half and a seven and a half. I'll go with your seven for that reason. Because here it is in between, and and again, that's the whole thing. It's a difference between you know the first half versus the second half, and it is something that you know I kind of look back at it and go, why did I avoid watching this film for the longest time? <laughs> well, there know. are there are plenty of films that are like that for you, so that gives it a final score of forty nine point seven, and. Uh, that will put it just above Raiders of the Lost Ark for number nine on the li current list. Wow. Um, I did forget to mention that um, uh, part of the reason it got knocked down, it probably would have been a little bit higher, but this only has a 72 audience score. <laughs> really? Yep. Um, as popular as it was. Mm. I don't know, and maybe that's a recency thing that maybe it's exactly your comment of the saccharin, yeah. but um, I, for I whatever reason... I think that's got to be what it is, because it is. You know, and, and moreover, when you think about it, I mean, can you find any more of a Lily White cast? Can you think of one minority in the entire film? I, I, well, to be fair, like, didn't we go through this last week for Silence of the Lambs. Like, you know, unless you're going to throw in Morgan Freeman as the next door neighbor. <laughs> I mean, the alien in here is an alien. <laughs> okay. So, 
But uh, all right. So I don't have any other remaining questions. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to uh, briefly discuss yet? I know this is uh, in the the uh, upper end of the Spielberg uh, filmography. It's arguably in his top five. It's minimum in his top ten. I know. And, and in retrospect, I love Spielberg. I think Spielberg's great. But uh, I can name, you know, I really love Jaws. I really love Saving Private Ryan. We won't even talk well, about Schindler's because that's a, that is a cult film that is beyond what you can even describe. So I think one of these episodes um, are the ones we could do with specific directors. So Hitchcock, his top five, um, Spielberg, and some of these because... Uh, th this is just it. You start running down the list. I think it would be extremely difficult. It's like picking the top five Beatles songs um, that uh, Catch Me If You Can, um, Jurassic Park, Saving Private Ryan, Schindler's List. Um, I know I'm forgetting uh, probably a ton of these, but uh, E.T., Close Encounters, Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, the or the other two Indiana Jones films we won't Bridge mention. Bridge of Spies. Before. Um, yeah, Bridge of Spies more recently, but like, um, he's coming out with West Side Story later this year. He's just got such a filmography that it, it's hard to compete with. I, I dare say, um, even though his run in, in the last maybe 15 years hasn't been as impressive, it's still that he's okay, but you, you look at compared to his like 70s, 80s, and 90s. How old is he? I understand. I'm simply saying he hasn't maintained. No one does. But You're right, because you get tired. And when you reach the level of success well, and fame and money that he has, your drive diminishes. You look instead yes, at you, what, what he does now, and you realize that, oh, my God, you know, you're, you're gonna have you're gonna have a certain production. You're gonna have he produces a dozen eggs, and one out of every dozen, maybe every two dozen, is an is a golden egg. And when that happens, you savor it because you just can't keep up that level of production and concentration and focus that it does in order to achieve what he has done. All right. So that, that will be one to potentially revisit at another point. I think we could have a, an interesting discussion on the, the inclusion of what would be his top five per se. Cause I think there, there are several that we probably missed um, that uh, would deserve potential inclusion. So, all right. But uh All right. Uh, I wish we could chat longer, but I'm expecting a friend for dinner. Uh, please rate, subscribe, and review the podcast. Um, you know, four or five stars, uh, hopefully, uh, if you enjoyed what we're doing. And um, uh, make sure you hit the follow in your Spotify, Apple, or 
whatever feed to get more episodes each week. We've been producing these. Uh, this is our 22nd episode. We have our special 25th episode, which I think um, might go a little long due to the sentimentality on that particular film for both of us. But uh, join us next week for Young Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Thank you. Uh, for which is uh, currently on stars uh, if you have that programming. Uh, otherwise, uh, have a great week, everybody. Thank you.